Hello everyone, I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Deputy Director at the Institute for Government. Welcome to this second afternoon panel session, which is also the launch of our Whitehall Monitor report. This report looks at the size, shape and performance of the civil service. And as part of launching that report, we're going to be discussing the next steps for civil service reform this year. I think to an extent, the pressures facing the civil service eased in 2023. The turmoil of 2022, where we had three different prime ministers and 67 different cabinet appointments, gave way to relative uh, stability, but there were still plenty of challenges to contend with. The cost of living crisis, strikes elsewhere in the public sector, which we've already covered in some of the panels today. But the scale of pandemic era crisis started to ease. And in that space, some progress has been made on civil service reform, on opening up the civil service, on improving core skills. We've talked about digital quite a lot already today and on making the civil service more representative. But we know that big problems continue. We've talked a lot about excessive churn and turnover at IFG, about challenges with attracting and retaining talent. Uh, we've talked about falling morale in the civil service for two years in a row at least. These are all problems which hinder government effectiveness and the ability to provide a stable, long-term set of programmes, projects and decisions for the country. Again, that sense of stability that is needed, that long-termism is something that's come up in almost every discussion today. So in this session, we're going to be talking a bit about where the civil service is now, um, drawing on the team's brilliant analysis in Whitehall Monitor, and how the general election can be used as an opportunity, an opportunity for some of the reforms to the civil service that might help put the government on a stronger footing. Now, I'm absolutely delighted to have a fabulous panel with us today to talk about it. We're going to begin with a presentation from Rhys Klein, who's actually down um, on the front row, an associate director at IFG and the lead author on the Whitehall Monitor report. Then we're going to hear from our panel. We've got uh, Nick Thomas-Simmons, who's the shadow minister for the Cabinet Office, Rowena Mason, the Whitehall editor at The Guardian, Lord Maud, former minister in the coalition government and the 2015 Conservative governments, and of course the author of the recent independent review of governance and accountability in the civil service. And Alex Thomas, our programme director for the civil service, who leads on all of that work for us at the IFG. Um, as with the rest of the events, we're going to be tweeting from at IFG events and using the hashtag IFGGov24, so please do tweet along. If you're watching online, then you can submit your questions anytime from now. Um, for those of you in the room or in the adjoining room, as usual, we'll be taking questions at the end of our discussion. So, Rhys, I'm going to hand over to you to, uh, to present the work. Thanks very much. Afternoon, everyone. So, uh, this year's Whitehall Monitor essentially poses two questions. Firstly, how did the civil service change last year? And secondly, what reform, therefore, do we argue is needed uh, moving forward? To begin with our findings on how Whitehall is changing, we touched on this earlier with John Glenn. The civil service continued to grow last year by about 3.2% or 15,000 FTE roles. Uh, that growth has slowed since the pandemic and it is principally being driven by the demand of frontline services. So over 90% of that growth came in the Home Office and MOJ uh, as those departments attempted to hire decision makers to try and clear the backlog or to resource overstretched prison services. Um, but this data dates back to September last year prior to Jeremy Hunt's headcount cap on civil service numbers. So it will be interesting to see whether that's landed in the civil service at the next release. Turnover is a long-running theme of Whitehall Monitor, and that has fallen somewhat last year from its post-pandemic peak, but it is still very high. 
most concerningly is the rate of uh, people leaving the civil service entirely, which has remained constant at nearly 9% uh, since the post-pandemic uh, peak. Essentially, we argue this should be seen as a warning sign of the consequences of low morale. If we move on to the main reason why staff want to leave the civil service, by far and away the main reason cited is pay, uh, with which less than a third of staff now report as being content. Pay fell again in real terms last year, although less starkly than in the inflationary peaks of 2022. Civil servants at each grade, as you can see by this chart, have experienced real terms cuts of between 12 and 26 percent since 2010. Uh, and this is causing problems for recruitment, retention, and as we go into in the report, grade inflation within the civil service. Another issue we look at is uh, Whitehall's expenditure on private sector consultancy. Uh, and temporary labour, which we have found to have grown by 40% and 29% in real terms since 2018-19, respectively. Often there are understandable reasons for this on a case-by-case -case basis. Look, for example, at the Department of Health and Social Care line there during the pandemic. But the overall trend is clear of an increasing reliance on private capacity to plug the gaps created by inadequate workforce planning. So to briefly turn then to what we believe needs to be done to address some of these problems and more, Emma touched on some of the good news stories from 2023 that we pull out in the report from which government can learn on relocation, on the representation of the workforce, for example. But we do contend that last year was a missed opportunity for reform and exposed some of the most long-standing problems that have gone unresolved for a very long time. We set out six areas in which we believe reform would be most valuable in the next parliament. The first is the workforce. To address all of the issues I've just identified, uh, essentially we argue again that each parliament should start with a clear workforce plan for the civil service that aligns resources to the government's priorities rather than repeated uh, inefficient headcount targets. The second is the centre of government. Clearly, the Cabinet Office, Treasury, Number 10, are absolutely crucial, both to the performance of the civil service and government overall. Uh, next month, we'll be setting out the findings of the Institute's uh, Commission on the Centre of Government. So watch this space for that. We will be setting out both structural recommendations for Number 10 in the Cabinet Office and recommendations of a new approach to aligning the government's priorities with its budgets and policy across Whitehall. Number three, relationships with ministers. One of the themes of this last parliament or this parliament has been tense relationships between civil servants and ministers. That has eased somewhat under the current government, but the need for reform remains. Uh, we set out again in this report why we believe that should start with putting the civil service on a new firmer statutory footing and why we believe that will improve government. Number four, policy making. Uh, we uh, argue that the trend towards longer term and cross-cutting government policy will only continue in the years to come and set out various ways in which we think the civil service can adapt to shake up its policy approaches, including but not limited to new senior specialist roles in policy areas across government, the routine publication of more analysis, advice and evidence behind key policies and new approaches to using interdepartmental structures and multidisciplinary teams in policy making. 
Digital data and AI, we agree with the government's focus on the scale of change this will mean for the civil service, as Hannah and John Glenn spoke about earlier today. But we warn that the government will not be able to make the most of this potential unless it particularly speeds up the overhaul of legacy IT systems, which are creating ever more expensive and risky uh, risks for departments to manage. Finally, we revisit some past IFG research on resilience and preparedness in light of the COVID inquiries work so far to draw out ways in which the civil service could change its approach to help uh, ensure the UK is a more resilient and prepared state for future crises. You'll notice that none of these problems are new, but they are really important. They've gone unresolved for a long time. And we think that whoever is in power after the forthcoming election has a real opportunity to use the full parliamentary term ahead of itself to set about a sort of more fundamental programme of reforms that have been tried in recent decades. So thank you very much. Thank you, Rhys. Nick, I, I want to come to, to you first. Rhys in some ways painted quite a stark picture of the context for the civil service. Falling pay, falling morale, persistent levels of churn. And I think over the last decade or more, we've seen a civil service that's had to cope with a whole series of crises, massive fluctuations in size, ranging from 20, 25% bigger and smaller, um, challenges around leadership, relationships. What are Labour's key priorities for reform of the civil service if you, if you win the election? And how would you aim to bring back a sense of vision and stability to the workforce? Well, well first of all, thank you very much for having me on the panel today. And thank you to Reese for the presentation. I'm very grateful for the Whitehall Monitor report as well, which was extremely useful. And I just wanted really to highlight two particular areas, uh, if I could, because... The, the picture is a, is a pretty bleak one, and there's obviously a relationship, not just in the wake, obviously, of Brexit, but also with regard to the churn of politicians. When I was looking at the report, and there's a 15% drop in morale at the Department for Education, where they managed six secretaries of state in the same year. There's no coincidence between those two figures. It's clearly the instability that's led to people feeling that way uh, about their place of work, but it's also in the context. I never thought that, and you know, having previously been a politics lecturer and taught about our conventions, that you'd have had a situation where individual civil servants were being named in Parliament and criticised, which was completely against the uh, convention, partly because of ministerial accountability and partly because civil servants are not in the same position to respond. So you can see why all these things have contributed to the position we are. Now, the first thing, I think, is to have some objectives, a sense of mission about the government. And, you know, Keir Starmer's given the five mission speeches, get Britain building again, switch on Great British Energy, get the NHS back on its feet, safety on Britain's streets, and breaking down barriers to opportunity. Those are the five mission speeches, the very clear objectives of the next Labour government if we are privileged to form one. So that's the first point, really, and it's working with the civil service not just to deliver on those missions, but to be able to see results in terms of uh, their delivery uh, pretty quickly. Um, this, the second thing uh, about this in terms of, of dealing with uh, morale is about, frankly, how the government conducts itself. And it's about Keir Starmer, first of all, setting as he will a sense of integrity from the top, a sense of professionalism about our conduct. We also want to uh, 
put that into actuality, if you like, with an ethics uh, and integrity commission to look at the, the conduct of ministers, which again, maybe if you look at particularly the last few years, particularly the last prime minister, but one, we had situations where the prime minister's uh, ethics advisor found uh, an allegation of bullying uh, to be founded in a breach of the ministerial code. It was the ethics advisor who was leaving the government, not the uh, cabinet minister. So I think it's those two things. It's a clear sense of our missions and priorities and working to deliver them. But secondly, it is about our own conduct in office. And I think the standard for that will be set from the very top by, uh, by Keir Starmer, who I hope will be the Prime Minister. Thanks, Nick. A couple of, um, of follow-ups there. So on, on missions, you know, you've outlined setting clear objectives uh, for the civil service. What do you think, if Labour does enter government, that means for machinery? Do you think that's going to involve wholesale machinery reform? Does Whitehall need to look very different to deliver against missions? Or actually, is it about working with what's already there? Well, I think... Firstly, it'll be with, with working what's already there, and each of the five mission leads will be secretaries of state with their own departments. But and I'm sure we'll come on to Francis's fine report in a moment, but one of the things that Francis identifies in it, which has been a perennial problem in British politics, is, is the hollow centre. Mm -hmm. that, that for all the centralisation, I think Francis and I were discussing it earlier, for all the centralisation in Britain, oddly, power is not particularly centralised into number mm. 10. And it's been, you know, I've written books on previous prime ministers, this has been a fairly common problem in post-war British politics. And I think we will have to combine, yes, the secretaries of state as the mission leads, but how we bring that together in terms of delivery and monitoring delivery at the centre is going to be really, really important. Thank you. And then just one more follow-up. I think, you know, you're absolutely right to set out the need for clear kind of vision and objectives. But one of the other things that comes through very strongly in our analysis is pay. Pay is one of the, one of the motivating factors for huge churn, for challenges around morale. Um, and the pay cuts really have been quite steep in real terms of somewhere between 12 and 26 percent since 2010, depending on the seniority of the civil service, civil servant. How will Labour go about tackling problems on pay if you perceive them as problems? Well, look, th th there's a wider issue, not just with, you know, the civil services in, you know, civil servants here and, and around the country. It's a wider problem, isn't it, across the, uh, across the public sector. And, you know, the, the approach we've always said is that we would be getting around the table with people trying to find solutions. Uh, I think that we've said more broadly that the, the trade union acts the government has passed we would uh, repeal. Uh, I, I, I hesitate a little bit because I've got to go back and face Rachel Reeves, so I better not commit <laughs> to a massive spending commitment on pay. But, but I think our position would be, of course, people need to be properly remunerated, we recognise it. We'll obviously have to look at the financial envelope um, that we inherit, but we would want to have a situation where, if there are disputes, we're getting around the table trying to solve them. Thank you. Rowena, I want to come to, um, to you now. The election's obviously going to be the standout feature of the, uh, of the year for, for all of us, I think. And there's probably a risk that it ends up between now and then being another kind of a wasted year in terms of getting things done, little political energy being invested in delivery, instead big focus on kind of making promises, um, but not much energy left to do much about them. What impact do you think the looming poll is going to have on Whitehall? And how do you think civil servants can best spend their time ahead of the election? 
Well, thanks very much for having me, first of all. And um, I think it was interesting what Rhys was saying about uh, there being an opportunity for fundamental reform by whoever wins the election and forms the next government. Um, in the next year, civil servants could be thinking about how best that could be done, um, although it's obviously going to be a political, uh, political decision. But having said that, I, I mean, John Glenn started his speech talking about how this had been discussed for literally decades, if not hundreds of years, and the difficulty of it. And it is going to be a question of priorities. Um, I do seriously doubt whether Labour's, uh, one of its biggest priorities is going to be wholesale fundamental reform of the civil service. Um, it's not one of Keir Starmer's five big missions that, that uh, Nick just read out. And um, it, it, it's a very tricky nut to crack uh, and, and possibly not one uh, that will be top of the list when you've got crumbling public services, the NHS in real crisis, so many other different issues um, on a new government's plate. Um, but having said that, Keir Starmer is very interested, um, in my view, in, in, this, in delivery and getting things done. The levers uh, that the party might want to pull in order to get his priorities through. So I would think that reforms that happen within the civil service will be geared towards that. So whether it's, um, uh, as Nick referred to, without making any specific commitments, trying to strengthen number 10 in order to uh, deliver a new government's policy priorities. Um, and I'd expect the same if the Conservatives were to win, for, for that to be uh, a sort of top of the priority list for them as well. Um, there have been some changes, but you know the, the sort of split role between um, Number ten and the cabinet office and who's who's in charge and whether that you know whether that that could be uh, revisited as um, Francis was recommending in in his report um, and then just on um, expectations for pay rises with the civil service you know I wouldn't really expect Labour to be opening their checkbooks for for huge pay rises in the same way that you wouldn't really expect it of the. Uh, of a Conservative government either. They're operating within a really tight spending envelope and everybody's really being really, really careful not to make big promises on that. Um, uh, but, but moving on to morale, um, I, I do wonder whether just if, if, a late, if Labour were to win the election, um, that might, we might start to see morale shift. We've had such a period of instability with so many different prime ministers taking over. Kind of the, the turmoil of Liz Truss, civil servants being attacked openly by ministers that were meant to be in charge of them. Um, years and years of this kind of really difficult political environment. At the start of a new, um, potentially a new government and a, a next, you know, a different phase in the political cycle, you might expect morale to be boosted a little bit with and potentially the, the promise of a bit more. Uh, a bit more stability if there were to be um, a big majority. Um, and I, I would imagine Labour is not going to be so sort of openly hostile towards uh, the civil service as we have seen from some Conservative ministers in recent years. Um, and, you know, that there are maybe some sort of things to deal with churn. Keir Starmer has, there's been a little bit of briefing around that from Labour that uh, Starmer's interested in how to deal with churn and I wonder how much that might be influenced by Sue Gray, who's obviously very experienced in the civil service and, um, and, and trying, to, trying to improve things. Um, there, the IFGs, you've obviously had some very good ideas about how you might potentially reduce churn and financial incentives um, without promising big pay rises could be one of those things to try and keep 
civil servants in their jobs for longer. Brilliant, thank you. And you touched on, on some of the kind of labour reforms that a uh, civil service might be thinking about as it prepares for an election. We've had a Conservative or a Conservative-led government for 14 years now. How do you think what Labour might expect from a civil service will be different to a Conservative party? I mean, I, it's very difficult when a party's been out of power for that long to, to know how things work, and that's partly why the civil service goes in for... Uh, sorry, party officials go in for access talks with the civil mm -hmm. service, and that's when they'll really get an idea of what's possible, where all the pitfalls lie, and some of the things, you know, really sort of stress test their ideas. They'll be taking all their wonderful things that, that might end up in the manifesto to the civil service and get varying degrees of enthusiasm or, or, you know, pointing out where things might go wrong. So I think we'll find out, or Labour will find out in the next year, exactly a bit more about how that relationship with, with uh, the civil service might work. Thank you. Francis, good to come to you now. So in November, we ran an event with you that looked in depth at the recommendations from, from your review and our own views on the kind of priority areas for reform. Everybody should, uh, should watch the recording on our website. I think there was lots of, of agreement between us, but lots of the recommendations from your work and from our work have come up repeatedly over the years, yeah. whether that's reducing churn, rewarding specialist expertise, improving and clarifying accountability, opening up more appointments to external candidates. Given that there is such consensus, not just from us, but from almost anybody who's worked on, on civil service reform over the years, why haven't we seen sufficient change yet? And what should any new government be doing to start making real impact on tackling these issues? Well, I mean, the first thing is it's essential uh, but the, the kind of things I was looking at, which weren't the, the substance of, of the problems that, that required change and improvement, I was really looking at the question of why is it that people who look at civil service reform over not just the years but the decades come up with the same things again and again and again, and it isn't that people haven't tried to solve them. Um, I'm one of those who, who has. Um, and it's very difficult to make it happen, but even more difficult for any changes to be sustained. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and I, I concluded that the reason is that there are a number of reasons, but the first thing is there's no one in charge um, of the civil service. There's a head of the civil service, but it's a part-time job. Uh, and uh, uh, it, the, the person who does it is typically um, selected on the basis of their qualities to be the cabinet secretary, the prime ministers and the cabinet's top policy advisor, which are very different qualities required to manage a, a huge and complicated organization focused largely on, on delivery and implementation. Um, and that's the first thing. The second thing is there's no one holding, if there were such a person, um, they would need to be given proper uh, authority. Um, and the Institute's um, uh, approach to that is to say statutory board. My approach is, is to say uh, make them accountable, um, give them delegated authority from the prime minister's uh, statutory power to manage the civil service, and then have that person held to account by uh, someone other than ministers. Mm -hmm. so, so you've got the uh, task of, of continuous improvement, the, what I've called the stewardship obligation, which has to transcend the electoral cycle and, uh, and in which there is no politics, no ideology um, at all. This is about having a really effective civil service that can provide great knowledgeable advice to ministers and then implement what they decide. You know, it's not, that, it's not a difficult concept, 
uh, and whatever the color of the government, that's what they need. Um, they may need it to be able to do different things, but that's much more at the margins than it, it is the, uh, the fundamentals. So, um, and, uh, I mean, I know that lots of people have tried to do, to, to make change, and, and, um, and, and lots of very good people with good intentions, both civil servants and ministers, have tried to do this, and to the extent that they do succeed in making change happen, far too often it regresses. As soon as the eye is off the ball, it regresses. And that's because there isn't that accountability or that transparency. And, and one of the things, again, that uh, uh, became more and more clear the more I looked at this and, uh, and read and talked to people, uh, the civil service is, is, I think, more or less unique among the great institutions in, in the public sector, that there is no systematic, organized, external scrutiny of it. The Commission, Civil Service Commission, looks like it's a regulator, but actually is focused on guarding the perimeter, defending the perimeter, um, i.e. overseeing external recruitment. And, and nobody systematically looks at, with a, an external dispassionate eye, at, at how the civil service manages itself, other than the civil service, because there is this sort of mystique attached to it that what it does is so unique and, 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 and distinctive and unlike anything else that the only people who can be trusted to oversee it is the, the people in the institution itself. And that just seems to me not, not sustainable in, in today's world. And it is part of why people who have been looking at uh, these issues over these decades, you know, going certainly back to Fulton 55 years ago, but, but well before that, um, keep coming up with the, with, with the same uh, critiques uh, and they don't get resolved. And uh, I found in buried in the Fulton uh, report these uh, immortal words. They said, we have found no instance where reform has run ahead too rapidly. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> nice, Francis. I just, I wanted to pick up on something that uh, John Glenn said in his uh, keynote speech earlier. He was talking a lot about better management and stronger accountability arrangements that he thinks should be in place in the civil service. And I wondered if, if, if you could reflect on that, but also talk a little bit about what that would look like tangibly for you. Um, so what expectation should, for instance, John Glenn be putting on permanent secretaries in departments now if you really wanted to shift the dial on some of it? Well, I mean, there's not, nothing, none of this is new. People have been concerned with uh, the absence of consistent, strong performance mm -hmm. management in the civil service forever. It's in Fulton, for heaven's sake, and, and, and before. Um, and um, how do you, uh, how, you, you, you have to have, in terms of accountability, there has to be an accountability which isn't to ministers. You know, as I say in the report, my review, there is no one better qualified than I am to say that expecting ministerial accountability to ministers to, be, to work is, is simply not going to be enough. I, I was better qualified than almost anyone else has been to, to exercise that accountability. I was senior, experienced, I'd been around. I was at the end of my career, so I didn't care who I annoyed, um, <laughs> uh, as many people will testify. Um, and, um, and 
Uh, and, we, and I stayed there for five years, which is an unprecedented longevity. I mean, despite the very best efforts of some people in the civil service to, um, uh, to have me moved along, um, out, up, sideways, wherever. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and it's just really hard. Um, uh, so that's why you have to have arrangements which transcend the electoral cycle, which, which you have to create quite explicitly the stewardship obligation, which is not about the business of the government. You have to have a means of differentiating between the business of the government of the day, which is crucial and has, must have primacy, clearly. But there is something else here, which is, the, which is you know, part of, it ought to be part of the benefit of having a permanent uh, politically impartial civil service that it does look after its own capability. And there has to be a way of that being held to account and scrutinized in an organized, systematic, dispassionate way that simply doesn't exist at the moment. And so without that, the best will in the world, um, no one in charge um, of the civils or empowered to make things happen other than by cajolery and, and persuasion, uh, no accountability other than the in inevitably, and you know, we've seen spectacularly how transient the ministerial accountability is with you know, a, a constant stream of ministers through the, through the cabinet office. The role of the cabinet office consistently changing, expanding, contracting, huge confusion about what its, uh, what its core role is. Not surprising that, um, you know, uh, uh, Nick, if his, uh, he and his colleagues get elected, they, I'm sure they'll do their very best to make all of this work better, but it's going to be really tough unless these fundamental things uh, are changed. Thank you, Francis. Alex, I want to come to you and just zoom in on, on policy making specifically for a moment, and policy making capability. And um, we've already touched on the fact that Labour have set out, you know, a, a long term vision, a set of missions that are explicitly there to run over multiple parliaments. Sunak similarly, you know, set out his desire to focus on, on the long term. But policy making cycles and expertise in, in Whitehall has become a bit more short term and reactive, understandably so, after a series of crises that have required um, a, a more immediate focus. How do you think Whitehall can move away from the immediate and towards a kind of longer horizon in policy making? Yeah, it's a you know, perennial question, but I agree with you that it's it's been uh, worse and harder over the last um, uh, the last kind of period. Partly because the sort of political cycle sped up and fragmented um, post Brexit, but also you know the shocks of uh, COVID and and others. I suppose um, you know, a few things come to mind. One is the one, I, I do think uh, a political moment of reset, whether it's a change of government from blue to red or, or not, but a moment as Nick and um, Rowena talked about, a kind of a government that has a clear majority, there is a moment of reset, is focused on a five-year or a 10-year time horizon. Uh, that is a, a kind of necessary, but probably not sufficient condition for that to happen. So the, you know, clearly the political context and the programme that the government is then prosecuting really, you know, really, really matters. But beyond that, I suppose the two things that I'd pick out, one is, you know, all of the stuff that we've been talking about in the last uh, few minutes that Francis' report was on, the kind of the, the capability um, of the civil service, the skills, um, uh, civil servants staying in jobs for long enough, 
pay flexibility to enable that. Um, it doesn't necessarily need you know, more pay in terms of the total budget, but more flexibility around the balance between pay and pensions and so on and, 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 and so on. So there's a, there's a whole load of things that John Glenn was talking about this morning that um, Francis and others has, has worked on that is about civil service capability. But what underpins that? Well, this, you know, it comes back a lot to me, this stewardship obligation, the accountability of the civil service. We've argued for an underpinning uh, statutory set of responsibilities that the civil service should, um, uh, should, should pursue. And linked to that, and this really did come out from the John Glenn stuff, but also from Reese's presentation, I think it's absolutely critical to have a proper workforce plan that is aligned to the priorities of the government. And for me, that's where you bring together what the government wants to achieve and, um, uh, and the machinery that is able to do it. That should be owned by the head of the civil service uh, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and be prosecuted in that way. So I do think a workforce plan underpinned by proper architecture at the centre um, uh, and for the civil service is really important. Second quick point, and it, it does go a bit off, off what, what Nick said, I think there is, a, there is another architecture point, particularly around the long term and the cross-cutting and the missions. And I think mm -hmm. there is a danger for Nick and his colleagues if they come in and they say, well, we've got these missions, they're cross-cutting, it'll all happen. Sit down with the cabinet secretary or the civil <laughs> service, they say, right, five cabinet committees, off we go. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to me to be insufficient. I mean, cabinet committees, great, but I think... Um, incoming Labour ministers need to really interrogate, both through the access talks now uh, and when they come into office, the, the sort of the architecture that they're being served up for these for these missions, partly because the missions are really different. I mean, again, I, I uh, won't say much about it because Nick is far better place, but you know, opportunity and growth and safe streets, and they're, they're very different qualitative things. And so I think you will need different government um, architecture in order to deliver them. But also because if you're really serious about the cross-cutting side of it, you've got to sort budgets, you've got to look at accounting officers. If you put one permanent secretary in one department in charge of one mission, they will pretty soon run up against the accounting officer buffer. So should you be appointing a single sort of senior permanent secretary for each mission that has authority over other budgets and how do you think about the accounting officers go? So to, to really unlock that kind of long-term and cross-cutting policy stuff that, you know, to your question, I think we need to unpick quite a lot of these things that have been axiomatic for how the civil service should work for a long time. Thank you, Alex. Okay, we've got about 20 minutes uh, for questions. We're going to finish bang on 25 past as Nick has to uh, go, go and vote. Um, quite important. So I'm going to take um, questions in rounds of three. There'll be a mic coming round. Please let us know um, who you are and where you're from. Given that we are limited for time, please do also make it a question rather than a comment. If it's directed to a particular panellist, then just let us know. Okay, hands up, please. So we've got one at the back here, one here, and one over here. Hi, I'm Martin George from the Local Government Chronicle. I wanted to talk about the civil service and Labour's plans for devolution. Last year, Labour was talking about the biggest transfer ever of power from Westminster to the people. What does the civil service in Whitehall need to do to deliver that? How does it need to change to deliver that? Are we going to see lots of senior civil servants eventually moving into local and regional government? Because that's actually where the power genuinely is. Thank you very much. We've got one here. Chris, uh, Chris Smythe from the Times. Uh, in terms of the, in, in the interests of long-term consistent policymaking, I wanted to ask Nick what, I don't know if you heard John Glenn's speech, but he was talking about performance-related pay, smaller, better-paid civil services, getting rid of poor performers more easily. What of the work that he is talking about would Labour wish to carry on with, uh, and where do you actively disagree with him? 
Thank you. And I had one over here. Hi, I'm Lucy from Inflect. Um, my question is also for Nick. You mentioned the Ethics <laughs> and Integrity Commission earlier. Um, how might the Commission improve morale and trust within the civil service, but also within the wider general public? Okay, so we've got uh, how can the civil service go about delivering the kind of scale of ambition um, that you've set out on devolution? Um, what would you continue? Of what uh, John Glenn has suggested, he'll be starting and building morale and trust. Nick, um, I think they're all directed at you, so I'm going to start <laughs> with you. Uh, well, in terms of the, I'll, I'll take the question in reverse order if that's okay, but in terms of the Ethics and Integrity Commission, how does it help with civil service morale and how does it help with the public's view of government? Well, I would hope that it would provide that reassurance that there is this proper fair policing of ministerial behaviour and the ministerial code. Now, of course, in our system, since, you know, Clem Attlee issued questions of procedure for ministers, I think it was called then, in 1945, the Prime Minister ultimately is the person who's going to have to hold ministers to account. But I think anyone, any reasonable observer looking uh, at our system, in, particularly in the last six or seven years. I, I personally would argue that standards in public life have undergone something of a denigration, frankly, in terms of what we've seen. So it is about that restoration of standards, frankly, conventions that previously uh, existed, that we can give some sort of, you know, some actuality, some reality to with an Ethics and Integrity Commission, which hopefully would give the civil service a sense that ministers' conduct is being properly looked at, ministers are being held to account, but it would hopefully give the public a sense as well. Of course, we've got democratic ability at elections, but we do have a ministerial code, and there is actually an effort being made to see that it's being properly respected. Chris, sorry to disappoint you, I didn't actually hear John Glenn's speech because I was in shadow cabinet this morning, so I can't tell you precisely uh, which bits I did or didn't disagree with, but in terms of what you've just described and picking up uh, I think a point that, that Francis made earlier in his remarks, it would appear that what he is talking about is how we get the best possible performance, both in terms of the structure of the civil service and how we manage the individuals to get to best performance. I mean, we were talking about the issue of churn and undoubtedly high churn is massively problematic. When I was researching a biography of Harold Wilson, that was precisely what the Fulton Committee said in 1968 was a real problem in the civil service, that you had to have a sense of stability. And I think at that time, Harold Wilson was trying to, he ended up, he created the Ministry of Technology and was trying to look at how, you know, you could have, have an active industrial policy. And he was hitting exactly the same problem about this, um, this churn, which obviously we've got to deal with. So sorry not to answer direct which bits I agree or not, but I haven't, I'll have to go away and look at, um, look at his speech. Uh, in terms of devolution and what we need to do, I've always thought that if you increase powers and status at particular levels of government, they will attract the very best people who will want to actually go and be a part of it. So in terms of would a, say, a, you know, a particularly ambitious civil servant want to go and work in local or regional government, I think if you've given local and regional government the respect, the powers, the status, then I would hope they would be likely to want and go and work for that as well as working for central government. But I guess the, the point on devolution, I think Aniram Bevan said the purpose of gaining power is to be able to give it away. 
And it's that that's historically been the problem. It's been the problem in terms of Whitehall and powers being uh, accrued to Whitehall and a reluctance even when powers are devolved to quite be able to let go. And I say that as a Welsh member of parliament who's lived obviously now a quarter of a century uh, in a devolved administration uh, in Wales. So for me, you know, we've had the, the Brown Commission obviously, which we, we've looked at in terms of uh, the kind of devolution agenda we have particularly in England, but it's gonna be I think also about a mindset as well, that once we do devolve power, that people should be held to account locally for how they exercise it. Thank you. Rowena, you've already um, said you think it's unlikely that Labour are going to do an enormous amount um, on pay, but are there other things they could be doing to improve morale and trust? Um, I actually agree with Nick's answer about uh, this ethics and uh, ethics and standards commission uh, that was sort of a watchdog that all govern ministers and how that might potentially increase morale in the civil service as well. I think what we saw in some of the Boris Johnson years uh, and after is um, a breakdown in trust between ministers and the civil servants, and that in turn led to a lot of civil service whistleblowing or in some cases leaking. Um, because of bad behaviour by, in many cases, by ministers talking about bullying or during the Partygate scandal. And if there is a kind of a structure, uh, a kind of ethic, ethics and integrity commission that people can go to, that they can report things to, that they can, um, that they, that's overseeing standards, I think that is something that could potentially improve those relations. Um, but apart, you know, apart from that, I do, I do think a, a sort of a reset moment, a, a new government, um, and uh, if there are things that can be done on pay, uh, as Alex was talking about, that aren't necessarily you know, across the board pay rises, but more flexibility in how pay is awarded, bonuses for staying in roles for a long time, that sort of thing, that could be something that, again, increases morale. And then um, it is also possible that, that in, uh, I think, the figures might actually show an uptick in morale for this previous for this last year that we haven't got the data for yet just because there has been a slightly more more stable period i think morale might be slightly on the up uh, as it is and maybe you know a change of government could improve that further thank you um francis alex i'm going to come to you both with a couple of online questions um francis for you first as somebody who's been studying issues of civil service reform for for many years are there any other countries that offer the uk civil service a model of what good looks like um they're all everyone is different um i i particularly looked at the ones which kind of are analogous so canada australia new zealand ireland um which have similar Westminster-type um, uh, parliamentary democracy and, and a permanent um, politically impartial civil service. Um, and that, that, as I was looking particularly, by terms of reference, invited me to, uh, where what there is to learn, um, every, um, and there are lots of differences, um, uh, every single one, with the possible exception of New Zealand, which isn't clear, um, has a separate budget ministry. Um, and, um, um, and actually, take, picking up Alex's point about the need for a proper workforce plan, how, yeah, we, we have this absurd situation where in civil service um, management, pay sits in one department and responsibility for size, shape, composition, 
capability sits in another. And how, how are you expected to have a coherent um, uh, workforce plan when there are obvious uh, interlinks between interaction between um, pay uh, and shape and size and, and, and capability. I mean, it's just ludicrous. When um, in the late in the Boris Johnson government, uh, there was a decision to downsize the civil service to the size it was when I left, because um, um, all of that decrease had, had come back. Um, I, I was approached separately by the minister in the cabinet office to, to ask for advice on how we had done it and then completely separately by the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Totally different people in the room asking the same question. Uh, and it just, it, for me, illustrated vividly um, how, how impossible we make it to run this, um, this effectively. Um, where you, know, you have a head of the civil service who is supposed to be responsible for shape, size, capability, all of these things, without any power to do it, and with um, decisions on pay being taken wholly separately and often very jealously guarded by the Treasury. Alex, to undertake some of the reforms that we've described so far, how much will it cost and how long will it take? Um, and perhaps in the how long will it take, what are the, kind of, what are the immediate priorities and what are some of the things that are for the, the longer term? Yeah, it's in the bill. How much will it cost? I don't know. Um, uh, I mean, the, but the, the point, the serious point there, I suppose, without kind of getting to a million or a billion figure, is that um, getting the architecture of the state right should save money in, in a world where, um, uh, uh, where uh, we are, you know, we have limited resources, uh, uh, limited time. Um, uh, the... Um, sort of reducing the friction um, uh, and, uh, and and making sure that the right people are in the right place with the right skills um, uh, it should uh, should save money rather than cost it. Although, like anything else, some of the uh, um, reforms around, particularly around sort of data and digital, um, uh, will 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 take some money. But in the grand scheme of things, not very much. Although every penny has to be accounted for. In terms of time, I mean, it is a sort of. I don't think they do sort of continuously paint the fourth bridge now because of improvements in the quality of paint. But, um, but it is a sort of, you know, it is, yeah. we will always be talking about Absolutely. this. For all that we go on about Fulton, and, you know, everything has been going on forever. This is not a once and done yeah. project. Um, so it will always be incumbent on any government and any civil service to demonstrate and re-demonstrate its capability, um, particularly to successive um, ministers coming, uh, uh, coming in. But I do think we are at a moment of potential inflection uh, and I think there are certain things that an incoming government could do straight away uh, to um, reorganize the center on the point about the center being particularly um, weak while we have a, a highly centralized um, uh, system you could reorganize that you could um, clean up some of the cabinet secretary head of the civil service responsibilities um, you could um, sort out some of the kind of gaps in capacity and capability in number 10 um, you could do those things very um, uh, very quickly. It would take a little bit longer to do um, some of the other um, points around um, uh, you know, putting the civil service on a statutory basis would take a certain amount of time to work through as we've, we've, we've been arguing. Um, but I don't I mean, none of these things are um, none of these things are sort of uh, uh, you know, hugely lengthy um, uh, programs of reform. It's about getting the incentives Right. So changing the civil service pay structure, of course, will take time for that to feed through, but it, it should be a kind of a fairly rapid thing. 
Thank you. Okay, I've got time for a couple more questions from the audience. Here, we've got one here, one here, and one there. Thanks very much, Philip Rutten, former civil servant and indeed Treasury official. Really interesting discussion. One observation is that a fairly consistent theme across the comments is the need for a tighter definition of the role of the civil service and expectations and standards the civil service should work to. And with a better definition comes the potential for sharper accountability. I would observe that if we are going to go down that route and it has a lot of attractions, then there's probably an important corollary which is to do with the role of um, one set of uh, people that I don't think has been mentioned so far, which is the role of special advisors, who do play a really important role and have done for at least 20 years or so in the formation development of policy, the advice to ministers. But as I would suggest recent events have shown, can occupy a rather ambiguous space in terms of accountability. And that we have sharp accountability for ministers to parliament, which I'm talking about sharpening the accountability of the civil service here. Is there a question about how we might need to define the accountability of special advisers? Thank you. Sorry, just down here. Uh, David Saintry, uh, chairman of the, the governing body. Um, I'd just like to ask uh, Francis a question, because I think he agrees with the Institute uh, that um, uh, the big problem is there is no one in charge. There is no one actually with the authority uh, to run the civil service. Uh, an obvious solution to that would seem to be what the Institute has been arguing for, which is that you do give um, a authority to the head of the civil service to actually run the civil service and then make him responsible in the first place to a board for the civil service and then uh, to parliament uh, to do it. What I don't understand is why that very simple solution is not one that he supports and has this rather curious thing of some outside commission getting involved in this process. Thank you. Uh, Adam Bolton from Times Radio. Well, really following on uh, from David Sainsbury, um, didn't we have an attempt at this with uh, Bob Kerslake, the late Bob Kerslake? And I wonder what the lessons from that were. Uh, and I'm also wondering whether, if Labour wins the election, you're actually up for this uh, separation or this new post and who you would make it accountable to. Brilliant. Thank you. Francis, I'm going to come to you first on uh, David's question about yeah. the uh, head of civil service. Well, so, so actually, just to pick up Adam's point, um, the key point is not the separation. The key point is about a, an, an individual whose who's dedicated role, full-time role, is to be head of the civil service. When we uh, put Bob Kerslake in place, um, it was, uh, the, the, the arrangement was that he would continue to be a part-time departmental permanent secretary. And I, I, I hadn't at that stage got my head around what was needed to make this, to make this work. But, and I tried to persuade Bob that it, the right thing to do was to give up being permanent secretary in CLG and be a full-time dedicated uh, head of the civil service. I don't think that would have worked because I don't think I'd, any of us had got our head around the need for there to be, uh, as, as David puts it, uh, 
a real authority given um, to, to that individual, a, a formal authority given. Uh, and the reason why I, I don't, uh, although our analysis of the problem is pretty much identical between what I arrived at and, and what the Institute and you, David, have, have argued for. Um, uh, first of all, what you recommend requires primary legislation, and that immediately means long grass and, and forever. I mean, the gestation period for this kind of legislation is, makes an elephant look like it's overnight. Um, and, um, and, and it just isn't reality going to happen. Whereas there is a remedy which is available tomorrow. Um, you know, the Prime Minister has, under the statute, the power to manage the civil service. It is possible for that power, some of that power, in a very defined way, uh, and to be helpful, I have a draft of such a delegation letter in, my, uh, in one of the annexes in my uh, report. Uh, could, they, that letter could issue tomorrow uh, to, to give formal power to manage the civil service in particular ways, uh, and it needs very precise engineering um, to get it right. But it's not rocket science. It's not, it's not impossible to do. And it's available tomorrow, um, indeed today, uh, because there's still some hours left. Um, <laughs> and um, um, so that's why I, I came to that uh, to that conclusion. And also, I think putting it on a statutory basis does challenge existing constitutional norms. And I set myself the restriction of not making recommendations that required primary legislation or which would challenge established constitutional norms. And I think what the, the statutory approach builds in the potential for conflict, uh, which it would be, have to be resolved at law. In, in my model, which is not a new commission for accountability, it was the existing Civil Service Commission uh, with enhanced powers. Um, where there's a conflict between, uh, which would largely be a conflict on bandwidth and resources, uh, in my model, the will of ministers has to prevail uh, as the constitutional norm would require, but it would get called out by the Civil Service Commission uh, being told by the civil, head of the civil service why this, this particular part of the stewardship obligation was not being uh, delivered, and the commission would itself report that to parliament. So you, instead of a statutory obligation, what you do is you create trans uh, accountability by transparency. Thanks, Francis. Alex, I know you're going to want to come in there. I'm going to just go to Nick first, because I know he has to go to, uh, to vote very shortly. And I, uh, Nick, I wondered if you might particularly come in on the question around special advisers and um, whether there should be any changes to their accountability arrangements. Well, can, can I quickly, because I think Adam asked me a direct question. So I, in answer to your question, we, we haven't any plans to create that uh, particular post. I agree with uh, what Francis has just said about transparency and data, which I think is really important. I think it's particularly important around the delivery of the missions mm. because some of them, like for example on crime, we've got a, a goal of halving violent crime over 10 years, but you need to see what the milestones are. You need to see whether you are making progress towards, and if you're not, what data is available to you to best inform uh, decision making. Um, it's, it's an interesting question about special advisors, actually, because there does seem to have developed a, uh, a sort of almost like a new a new area because I think you know Philip asked the question their numbers have increased dramatically as well is the other issue I mean I think 
the first lot, if I reckon, this goes back even further. I think they were sponsored by, I think, was it Roundtree in the 1970s? They were called the Chocolate Soldiers, I think, were the first little, little group, but it's obviously got bigger and bigger. Um, and I think that how exactly, you know, the special advisors interact both with the civil service and indeed how they, they're held to account through ministers is, is, is very, very important, actually, in terms of how we, uh, we organise the government. But in, in terms of the, can I just say overall, because I've got to dash and, and go and vote, but just I want to say thank you to the panel and thank you to all of you. It's been, been very useful. And this looks dreadful. It's a horrible look if I'm running out of the room, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's but I, but I've got to go and vote. Yours, so thank you very thank much. Thank you so much, Nick. Very thank good. You. Well done. Alex, I'm going to let you jump in now. <laughs> get on to favourite subjects. And uh, thank you. Um, uh, I, mean, I suppose just, it was partly to come back on the... Um, David Tensby Francis discussion, and then to pick up on uh, Adam's question in, in particular. The, um, I mean, clearly, uh, obviously, legislation does take time, but there is no reason with political will that it can't be done um, relatively quickly. So obviously, there's a kind of a debate there. But I think uh, uh, to kind of draw the threads of that conversation, it is it is to answer the Bob Kerslake question that I think some of the the underpinning, however you do it, whether it's through a statute or other means. It's so important because, I mean, I was an observer in the Cabinet Office to the, um, the Kerslake-Hayward um, uh, period and then became uh, Jeremy Hayward's uh, PPS. So I sort of saw the, the power of the kind of ley lines of power and authority in the Cabinet Office and how they are in the current system drawn towards um, the Cabinet Secretary as the uh, government official who is closest to um, the Prime Minister. And I think to some extent that was the, the Bob Kerslake question is that um, did he really have the authority over um, the, the civil service and the other permanent secretaries in order to transact some of these, um, you know, uh, there may be cons consensus, but they are still sticky, difficult yeah. questions that require authority from the centre um, to push them through. So um, to some extent, it is as an answer to that question that you need to unpit, underpin. If you think the current setup is unsatisfactory in various ways and you think there's a value to um, a head of the civil service running the civil service, you then need to underpin that, the, that person's authority somehow in a way differently to how we do it and we would do it as, as, as we've discussed. So I, th I think it is, it is one of the um, uh, aspects of answering the, the Kerslake question. On special advisors, just to, um, uh, to, to Philip's point, um, I mean, I think there are all sorts of kind of interesting kind of constitutional accountability debates you could, you could have on special advisors. The first thing I would do if I had a magic wand would be to appoint them properly, have a proper process, you know, uh, properly assessed through some means in, involving the minister to whom they are going to support um, their skills and capability. It's a very kind of fluid, random um, uh, system at the moment. Some special advisors are absolutely outstanding, incredibly capable people. Others are um, you know, capable people but have had less experience or um, uh, uh, haven't been uh, around the block quite as much. Um, so what, what are the, you know, being, being clear to what jobs you're appointing them and having some kind of process for doing it as well as kind of more transparency and, uh, uh, and, and, and so on, the kind of sort of deeper constitutional questions. Thanks, Alex. And Rowan, you get the, uh, the final remarks and perhaps particularly on special advisors. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, there'd be a case for putting them under the aegis of, of Labour's Ethics and Integrity Commission and hold them to their own set of standards um, and allow them to be... Um, investigated under that in the case of any wrongdoing um, and then just picking up on Alex's point about transparency I think there is a loophole in transparency with special advisors you don't get as much detailed in, uh, information about meetings they have for example I think that uh, that needs to be brought into line with that, that of ministers it's often very difficult to find out exactly what they've been up to.
Thanks, Rihanna. Okay, I think I'm going to have to draw this to a close now. I've already run a few minutes over. We've got a short break now and then are coming back for the essential IFG briefing, which is uh, where some of our experts at IFG come together to talk about the priorities for the year. So do join us for that. In the meantime, um, thank you very much again to Grant Thornton, our sponsor, for making this conference possible. And thanks, of course, to our brilliant panel. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.